So this morning we're going to look at a bunch of different Bible verses, and they're all relatively short. So I'm not going to have you turn to one particular passage this morning. There's going to be a lot of turning, and we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time in one particular place. So uh, verses will be up there on the screen. And the other thing that I want you to know is that uh, notes are available online for any of the things that we've done over the last few weeks. And so um, if you go to our website, newlifestanton.org, and click on the Sermons tab, there's a video player there where you can watch sermons, but also individual sermons are listed there, and you can click on those, listen to audio, find the PowerPoint notes that I have uh, have up there on the screen. So you can go back and look through these things and study them for yourselves, and that's really important. It's not just me up here telling you what I think, but I'm trying to represent the Word of God to you the best I can, and it's your job also to hear and to evaluate, is this true, is this what Scripture is saying? I uh, want to remind you also that um, not next week, but the week after, we're going to be doing our uh, question and answer session. And so we've covered all kinds of different topics. We've talked about the ways that God reveals himself. We've uh, talked about uh, God's um, so-called hiddenness, like why isn't God more obvious in the world? We've talked about the problem of evil. We've talked about salvation. We've talked about God's judgment. We've talked about all kinds of different things. And if you have questions related to those topics, I want to invite you to um, write them down. There's a paper in the back there and a pencil. Write them down, put them in that box. You don't have to put your name on it. It can just be totally anonymous. And in two weeks, we're going to take some time to answer some of those questions. As I said, as I work through all of these different topics, we can't cover every angle uh, in the span of a sermon. And so there are some things that I would like to go back and touch on to answer some questions that I have and answer some questions that you have. And again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. God is all-knowing. I'm not. Um, but there might be some things that you've wondered about that, that Scripture might address, and we want to take that time to address it. So um, please please do that. Help me out. Don't make me think up all the questions, please. What are your, what are your questions? All right, so... As I just said a moment ago, a number of weeks ago, we started a discussion on the problem of evil in the world. And we talked about all the suffering and the pain and the wrong choices that people make and, and the, the destruction and, and the, the death that's brought about because of it. <clears throat> and we're wrestling with this existence of evil on a couple of levels. We're wrestling with it intellectually and trying to understand, you know, how can God be good and all-powerful and all-loving, and yet there's still evil in the world? Why, why would he allow that kind of thing? <clears throat> and two, we're also wrestling with it on an emotional level. And it's important as we think through those things to separate those two. Because um, I have to have this understanding that whether or not I like something or something emotionally feels good to me has no bearing on whether or not it's true. Like, we, we've been using 2 plus 2 equals 4 as an example of truth over these last few weeks. And it doesn't matter whether or not I like 2 plus 2 equaling 4. Um, it's, it's true. It doesn't have to make me feel good that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it's true. But it's still important that we address our emotions, and God cares about our emotions. He, he is an emotional being. He, he delights. He takes pleasure in things. He grieves over things. He has righteous anger over things. 
And so it's important that we address emotion, the emotional side of our lives as well. <clears throat> so we're going to start a topic today, and we're going to begin to talk about divine punishment, and specifically this morning, what does the Bible teach about hell? And like the problem of evil, we need to recognize that there's an intellectual side of this and that there's an emotional side of this for us. And we want to be able to address them both. And as we look at what the, te- what the Bible teaches about final judgment, and I think through the emotional side of it, like if, if I'm honest, I'm not all that comfortable talking about this. <clears throat> it's not an easy topic to address. It's not because I don't believe in it. It's not because I don't believe there's a place of divine punishment. It's not because I'm somehow embarrassed or ashamed of the idea that my faith teaches final judgment and divine punishment. It's not because I somehow think God is wrong for doing something about evil in the world. But I'm uncomfortable, I think, because I recognize that I'm a sinner. That if I, if I understand that, that justice is that God will punish evildoers, and then I am honest about myself, I go, there's a lot of evil in my heart. And I look around at the people that I love, people that I care about, family members, friends, the guys, you know, the, the guy across the street, whatever. I recognize that they're people just like me. And no matter how hard we try to be good, there, there, there are wrong things that we do. And God is the just judge of the universe. And so those people that I love, they're in danger of judgment. And so as we begin to talk about this topic and we begin to talk about it kind of on an intellectual level, I I don't want to ignore the difficulties of the emotional side of things, of thinking that someone that I love might spend eternity under God's punishment. Like, this should bother me. It should affect my heart and it should move me to action to do things that that would bring them to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we want to wrestle with the truth this morning and not simply get caught up in the emotion of things, but discuss what the truth is. What does the Bible reveal? Now, if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, I've hit a couple of these ideas already, but we spent right before Easter a a good bit of time talking about God's righteousness and how that includes God's love and God's justice. And, and these are some of the things that, that we said about God's justice, and I can't rehearse them all, but all of these things build upon one another. So I would encourage you, if, if you want a refresher, go back and look at that message online. But we said that God is the just judge of humanity, that there is such thing as good and evil, and that there is such thing as right and wrong. And as God has allowed us the freedom to choose to do right or wrong, we need to understand that there will be consequences for our actions. We are free moral agents and we have real significance in this world and we will be held accountable for the evil that we do. Part of God's justice is setting all things right. When you read the Old Testament, it talks about how God cares about the oppressed, the poor, the orphans and the widows, those who are marginalized, those um, whom society takes advantage of, right? Like God cares about those people and he's going to come and he's going to um, deal with evil and he's going to set things right. And, and the Bible teaches that, that God, as the just judge, will punish 
all who do evil. God will punish those who do evil. So what we're going to be talking about this week and next week is this idea of judgment and specifically what is the nature of that punishment. We've already laid out that God as the judge will punish evil. So what does that punishment look like? What is the final state or the final condition of those who reject God? I want to begin this morning by summarizing a couple of views on this. These are views that are present within Christianity, um, and it's important that we're aware of them and we know what they teach and how we might evaluate them, all right? So there are three popular views on the eternal destiny of people, specifically those who do evil. The, the first view that you might come encounter with is called um, universalism, all right? And this is the idea that all people eventually turn from evil and spend eternity in fellowship with God. Now, within each of these categories, there are a wide range of views. There, there are variations on all of these things. There are differences among people who would hold these views. But in general, universalism is, is basically, hey, ultimately everyone's going to be saved. Ultimately, everyone's going to enter into the kingdom of God, whether or not there's this time of punishment. And during that time of punishment, people are allowed to repent and turn to God instead of um, continuing in evil. And, and the passages from the Bible that are used uh, to support this view would be passages that, that speak of the reconciliation of all things. Like there's some passages in the Bible that talk about how God will reconcile all things to himself. And so they would interpret those passages as meaning that means everybody is going to eventually come. Something like Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They see that as a, a, a statement on ultimate salvation for everyone, right? So it, it's not as if they're completely devoid of any kind of biblical support. Uh, we would maybe interpret those passages differently, but, but there is one view. The second view would be what's called annihilationism, or maybe you would come across it, it would be called conditional immortality. And this is the idea that, that those who do not turn from evil, that God will eventually take them out of existence. And again, there are different forms. There, there are some that would teach immediately at death, there's judgment, and they just cease to exist. God takes them out. There are other forms that would say they, they spend time undergoing punishment for whatever wrongs they have done, and then at some point, God, in His mercy, takes them out of existence. All right? And so they would turn to passages that speak of death and destruction to support these claims, right? And then the third view, which you might be more familiar with, um, it's what's been traditionally taught as, as I've grown up in this church and uh, what I hear taught in a lot of other places, especially in our, in our part of the world, our, our part of the United States, would be the view um, that there is eternal punishment. And this is exactly the way that it sounds, that, that those who do not turn from evil will experience punishment for eternity. So there are Christians that hold each of these views. And if I look at these views and I think about the idea of, you know, the, the traditional view of hell, what you see um, portrayed in maybe movies or cartoons or media or, or people's stories or, or Dante's Inferno or, or all that kind of stuff, like I look at these views and I'm like, 
gosh, I wish number one were true. That sounds great. Just like, I don't have to worry about my sin. You don't have to worry about your sin. We're all going to be okay. No big deal. Live it up. It'll all work itself out in the end. Everyone gets eternity with God. Right? I, I kind of wish that were true. Uh, if that's not true, number two, that seems attractive. Like at least like, you know, if I have to suffer for my sin or someone has to suffer for their sin, like I don't like the idea of it being forever. Like at some point, God just like wipes them out, you know, like, hey, I'll take that one, right? Um, number three, like that makes me uncomfortable. There are people that I love. The question is not what I, as the chief of sinners, want to be the case. It's not about what makes me feel the best. The question is what is just and what is right and what is true. All right? Which of these views best aligns with the teaching of Scripture? And that's what we're going to be wrestling with over today and next Sunday. And we're going to start by asking specifically the question, what is hell? Now, as we begin to look at this question, we need to realize that there are certain misconceptions that, that we hold. We need to uh, examine what our views are. There's certain misconceptions that are popular in the culture and in church tradition. And we need to make sure that we are aligning our views with what the Bible teaches, not just simply what we've picked up from people around us. Okay? So we want to look at what the Scripture says. First of all, we need to understand that hell is not a torture chamber. You know, there's lots of medieval paintings. There, there, there's... Uh, Literature, Dante's Inferno. Uh, there, there are all these uh, movies and, and cartoons that, that depict hell as uh, a torture chamber, right? Like, you're familiar with the Far Side cartoons? So those are, uh, like, I enjoy that sense of humor quite a bit. Um, but, um, you know, there are pictures in those cartoons of, you know, people standing in line in hell, and uh, hell is um, basically being guarded by demons with, with pitchforks, right? And the people are being... Uh, tortured. And that's, that's not exactly what the Bible teaches about hell. Hell is not some underground torture chamber. Hell is not a place that is ruled by Satan or demons. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that Satan is in charge in hell. And often you'll see this depicted like God in heaven and Satan reigning in hell. Satan does not reign in hell. We sing this morning, hallelujah, our God reigns. There is no place that is outside of the reign of God. Hell is depicted as a place of punishment for fallen angels, for demons, for the devil because of their rebellion against God. They do not reign. They do not have control over humanity in hell. There is no place where they are in charge. Hell is not an ongoing party for people who want to do evil. You'll hear this in songs, you know, like, hey, we're going to hell and we're going to have a good time. You know, like, that, that's the picture, right? This is one big ongoing party forever for people who don't want to do good. They want to enjoy the, the pleasures of evil. That is not a biblical picture of hell. Something else that's popped up, especially lately in the last decade or so, um, in, in the understanding of hell, and this is kind of different than the, than the first three, but it's common among Christians today, 
um, they will see the references to hell in the Bible as um, the first century garbage dump. And the argument goes something like this. Outside of Jerusalem, there is this, this valley. And in that valley, that's where the people of Jerusalem burned all their trash and you know, all the, uh, the dead bodies and the carcasses of animals and things like that. They would just take them out there. That was their garbage dump and they would burn it. And so Jesus, when he uses the word hell, he's just talking about the local garbage dump. The, the, the problem with that, and that's very popular these days, the problem with that is there's just no good evidence for it. The only reference that we have for this place that we're going to be talking about in just a moment being the local garbage dump comes from the 1200s, from a guy, a rabbi in Europe. And he's looking at all the literature that describes uh, divine punishment in hell, and he says, hey, um, there was this local garbage dump and um, Jesus or the, the Jews used that as an imagery for, uh, as an image for divine punishment. But we have no good sources from the time of Jesus or the time around Jesus that that was actually the place where they burned trash. We actually have evidence that was a completely different valley where they burned that stuff. So if you hear people say hell is just, you know, what the Jews referred to as their garbage dump, that there, there's just not a lot of solid evidence for that. All right? So we need to ask the question then, what is the biblical view of hell? Well, in our New Testament, the word hell translates the Greek word Gehenna. All right? And it appears about 12 times. And this word Gehenna is a reference to a geographical place, a valley outside of Jerusalem, an actual uh, place where these, these people knew of. And, and so... What it, what it refers to is what the, the Israelites called the Valley of Hinnom, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual place. And we want to look at how Jesus describes this place called Gehenna. And what I want to do this morning is, is difficult. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for you. Is we need to set aside everything that we think we know about hell, all right? Whatever images that you have from the Far Side cartoons or from Dante's Inferno or from whatever movies you've watched or whatever, try your best. We all bring these things to the Bible when, when we come and read, but try your best to just set them off to the side and let's look at some of the passages. We don't have time to go through all 12. I would love to. I would want to go through all 12. I have a list for you. Um, I, I would love to go through all the passages, but we're going to look at some of them and see how Jesus describes, and we're going to try to do it with fresh eyes, all right? It's very hard. We're going to try to do it with fresh eyes, all right? So in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, Jesus is talking, and he's given what's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he, and he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. No, I've come to fulfill it. And he begins this series of things. You've heard it said, but I say to you, right? And he, and he begins to talk about the typical understanding of the law, and he is pushing the people to go beyond the letter of the law and to get into the heart or the spirit of the law. And so in 21, he says, you've heard it said um, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means fool, is, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire 
of hell, right? So anyone who says you fool, who's angry with their brother, they are subject to judgment. Now, Jesus, as he says this, he's repeating some words, and it's important that, that we pick up on this, right? So if you murder, you're subject to judgment, right? Subject means liable to punishment, right? You're, you're liable to punishment. There's going to be a judgment upon you. He repeats it again if he says, if you're angry with your brother or sister. This gets a little more serious, right? Because I've never actually murdered anyone, but man, I've gotten mad at some people, right? You ever get mad at people? You're in danger of judgment. Watch out. I don't like, I don't like that. I just want to be mad at people. You know, I don't want to have to evaluate what I feel and think about people. But I'm, but I'm in danger of judgment if I'm angry with a brother or sister. He says, subject to judgment, and that, that word is repeated, right? And then he says, you're answerable to the court, and if you say, you fool, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. And that word danger is the same word that's translated subject in the verse before, right? Subject to judgment, and then literally it says, subject to the Gehenna of fire, all right? So this word Gehenna is what we, what we translate hell, right? You will be liable to punishment is the idea. You will be subject to the Gehenna of fire. So Jesus is warning, hey, don't cross this line, not only uh, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, because if not, you're in danger of judgment, all right? Matthew 10, 28. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's basically saying they're going to face some persecution. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, right? And so Jesus uses this word Gehenna here. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Matthew 23, 33. He's speaking to the Pharisees and how they're just way off base and their understanding of God and their understanding of the way to live is just completely uh, bankrupt. And he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? He says, how will you escape the condemnation of Gehenna? How will you escape the condemnation of hell? And this word condemnation uh, means like a sentence, right? Like, like the judge issues a just sentence. You know, you did this crime, you're going to prison for 10 years or, or whatever that, that just sentence is. That's the picture here, that there is this sentence of Gehenna or sentence of hell. In, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is talking about things that cause us to stumble and he's using hyperbolic language and he, he basically says, hey, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better you for it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm that eats them, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. All right, so Jesus is making this comparison and he's using hyperbolic language. Like, I, I don't believe Jesus is literally saying, pluck your eye out. But he's saying, pay attention to the things in your life that cause you to stumble and get rid of them, right? 
If there, if there are things that you're, that you're participating in, stop. If there are items that you have that, that lead you away from God, chuck them out, right? And he's using this very strong language. And he says, basically, it is better for you to enter into life maimed than to go into hell into inextinguishable fire. And so there's this contrast between life and the kingdom of God and Gehenna, which is translated hell, and fire. And at the end here in verse 48, this is a reference to Isaiah 66, verse 24. All right? The worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. In Isaiah 66, God is judging the enemies of Israel. God is judging all those who rebel against God. And basically he says their, bo- their, their, their body is going to be piled in this valley and, and the worms and the fire are, are going to consume their corpses, right? This is the imagery that Jesus is drawing on. He's drawing on Old Testament, Old Testament imagery here. So if we're going uh, to try to ask the question, what is hell, and not insert our own ideas or our own images into this word, then we need to ask how we should understand them. How did the Jews that Jesus was speaking to understand these references? Well, it's important to know that these references and these images are not new to them. They're derived from the Old Testament and they get picked up on writers from around the time of Jesus, right? So we're going to look specifically at the Old Testament backgrounds of this word. This word Gehenna that we translate hell in our English Bible. Again, I I mentioned this earlier, references a, a, a geographic place called the Valley of Hinnom. And this is an important place for the Jews. Because there were some horrible things that went down in this valley. There were some terrible, terrible deeds that they committed. Specifically, when you look up this word in in the Old Testament, we see that this is the place where the Israelites sacrificed their children in the fire to other gods, to Baal, to Molech. They came and they worshipped other gods and they presented their children, their sons and daughters, as offerings to these gods, and they burned them in the fire. And when you read these references, every time it says they sacrifice their children in the fire, and it emphasizes in the fire, in the fire, in the fire. So this valley is associated with fire, and it is associated with the evil deeds of the Israelites. And as we read this, this story, I, by the way, I don't expect you to be able to read those references pull them up online. Those are just there so you can pull them up later. Um, But as we read this story, um, this valley then became known as the place of God's judgment because their deeds were so heinous. Their deeds were so wicked. God said, it is in this place that I'm going to destroy you because you've done this horrible thing. And he says, this valley is going to become known as the Valley of Slaughter because this is where I'm going to take you out because you were so evil in sacrificing your children in the fire. And God has righteous anger over these people destroying their children in the worship of their gods. He says, this valley is going to be filled with dead bodies, basically, because of what you've done. I'm coming to take you out. The evil that you've done is so bad. This is going to be called the Valley of Slaughter. And there's a specific place in this valley called Topheth. We read in the book of Isaiah in chapter 30 
that God is about restoring his people, even though they've turned away, even though they've done horrible things, that God is always about showing grace and compassion. He says, I want to come and I want to show uh, grace and compassion to you. I want to give you a new heart and I want to uh, transform you. I, I want you to live righteously and I want to bless you and I want your life to uh, abound in the blessings of God. But I'm going to tell you that there will be judgment on the enemies of God. And as we read in Isaiah 30, starting with about verse 27, we see all these different images of God's judgment. It says that, that God's judgment is, is like a rushing torrent of water that just sweeps things away. It says that, that God's judgment is like a sieve of destruction. He takes the nations and he shakes them in the sieve and he judges them that way. It says that God's judgment is like striking blows, that he is a punishing club and that he's coming and striking blows on them because of their evil. And it says that his, his, his judgment is like burning anger and consuming fire. So all these pictures of God bringing judgment on those who rebel and turn away from righteousness and do evil. And it's in verse 33 that this place called Topheth is named. And again, this is, a, is a, another reference to this valley of Hinnom or what Jesus called Gehenna, right? And it, look at this. It's, it's really interesting. It says... Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. This is a reference to Jesus coming, right? Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. And the breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Have you heard, seen that imagery before? As we talk about Gehenna in the New Testament, as we maybe talk about the book of Revelation, the, the ultimate judgment of Satan and demons and those who will do evil, right? This idea of burning sulfur being set ablaze, an abundance of fire. It's called a fire pit, right? So, so when the Jews hear Jesus talk about this place of Gehenna and fire, these are all the things that are firing off in their heads, right? So take away your images and put these images there, these images of God's revelation. In the Old Testament, this valley and fire were symbols of God's just judgment against his people. Now, it's important that we understand that this language was picked up on by other writers at the time. And when you look at uh, the people who wrote around the time of Jesus, you know, 100 years before, 100 years after, in this period of time, they used the word Gehenna, and they talked about this fire, and they were talking about this valley of Hinnom as basically God is going to judge people who do evil. In Jesus, he uses this language that they're all familiar with. They know this language and he's using it to speak to them. It's interesting, when, when people have wrong views about the Old Testament and wrong views about the way that God works, Jesus confronts them and says, you know, you guys were thinking this, but you're wrong, you're missing it. In, in this instance, though, Jesus doesn't correct them. He says, you understand that Gehenna is a place of judgment. And I'm telling you, it is. Like, you will be judged. And specifically, he's looking at a lot of people who are religious leaders who think they're okay with God and like, you guys who know the scriptures, you guys who think you're close to God, you guys who think you're doing everything right, Gehenna, you're, you're going to be thrown into Gehenna if you don't repent, if you don't change, if you don't, if you don't turn to God. And so he's using this language. When he's using it, he's emphasizing the coming judgment of God. He's using language that they all understood to represent judgment. Now, what's really interesting, I said just a moment ago, this word Gehenna, that we translate hell, is only, used about, is only used 12 times in the New Testament. 
11 of them, 11 of them are from Jesus. Most of those, I think about seven, are used in the book of Matthew. It's used three times in that verse that we read in Mark and then used once in Luke. And the only other person that uses this is, the, uh, is James, the brother of Jesus, in his, in his letter. When you look at the New Testament, when you look at Acts and all of the epistles, it's interesting that the apostles, they don't use this word Gehenna. You won't see the word hell translated in any of those, those letters. When, when Paul goes out and preaches and we have his speech to the Athenians or, or wherever, he doesn't use this language. They don't use that language in the letters that he writes to the churches. And the question is why? Well, remember, Gehenna was a specific geographical place that all the people in Jerusalem knew about. But as the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, not everyone's going to be familiar with this place. Or not everyone, especially the Greeks, they're not going to be familiar with the Old Testament references to this place. So instead of using the word hell, Paul, he uses the word destruction. He uses death. He uses punishment. He uses all these different ways of communicating final judgment. But he doesn't use the reference to Gehenna or hell because they have no framework for it. They, they, they don't understand it. So, The next question that I have is, well, are there other images of judgment? If, if Gehenna and fire are symbols of God's judgment, what other images are used? Well, a lot of times we see images of fire. And you're definitely not going to be able to read these. These are even smaller than the ones before. But they'll be in the notes, and if you download them, you can zoom in and, and see what they are. Okay? If you want a printout of all these, I've got that too. Just let me know. Um, so many times... When speaking of God's judgment, you'll see the word fire. This is sometimes in the form of eternal fire. It's sometimes the lake of fire, sometimes the blazing furnace. And there are lots of references, as you can see, to fire. There are also references to darkness. People are said to be thrown out into the darkness. It's, it's said in, um, in the book of Jude and, and also in Second Peter that there is blackest darkness reserved for those who do evil. All right. A moment ago, I mentioned this idea of destruction or ruin or perishing. This idea that there's this, you're in a bad state. The, the ultimate um, end is a, a bad condition. Uh, there are references to pain and agony. We think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And the rich man says, I am agony, I'm in agony in this fire. And there are references to, to weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So, so there's, there's this um, uh, suffering that produces uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea is anger there. And sometimes these references are used together, like throw them out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And sometimes they're used separately. But there are all kinds of different images used. Gehenna, the word that's translated hell, is one of many, okay? So the question is, what do we do with all these images of judgment? And so this is I, where I am right now, okay? You might end up in a different place. It's your job to study these things and, and come to your own conclusions, right? But I'm going to do my best to present this and, as an understanding of, of where I am, right? So this is where I am. Given the variety of the images of judgment, 
I don't think that we need to be committed to literal flames in a place called hell, a place of divine punishment. Just like I don't think we need to be committed to literal darkness. If you think about it, I mean, like, fire produces light, and darkness is, well, darkness, right? So how do we make sense of these? How do they connect? And there are probably ways to harmonize those two. But I don't think that we have to be committed to that. It may be the case. I, if, if, if there are actual flames in this place of divine punishment, that might be right, right? Like, like who am I to say God is just? He will do what is right. But because of all of these images, I don't think we have to be committed to one specific view here but what we do have to be committed to is that there is a such thing as punishment. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how long that punishment is. We're going to be talking about um, whether it's eternal and what that might look like and, and the reasons that God might do things that way. But, but don't be confused. What I'm suggesting here is not to soften the picture of hell. Okay? I'm not at all saying that it's not going to be as bad as we imagine it. Okay? That's, that's not what I intend to say by this. What I intend to say is that whatever it is, it requires this vast array of imagery, this valley of slaughter, fire, the burning furnace, the lake of fire. It requires outer darkness. It requires blackest darkness. It requires destruction and perish and ruin. It requires pain and agony. It requires weeping and gnashing of teeth to even get at the idea. So by saying, I'm not sure if there's actual fire there, I'm not saying it's going to be better than, than we think. I'm saying this is horrible, and you don't want to be there, and you don't want your loved ones to be there. This is not to downplay the severity of the judgment, the righteous judgment. It's the opposite. Whatever this punishment is, it's It's awful because as we wrestle with the problem of evil, and guys, I, lo- like, I read a news article this morning that's, that, that was referencing a, a child that went missing and they, they found her dead, right? It's like, it's horrible. There's evil in this world. And God says, I will not let it stand. Evildoers will be brought to justice. But the reality is, it's not just those people over there, or you, it's me. I'm an evildoer, and apart from Christ, I am deserving of the worst punishment. Divine punishment is a reality, and God will punish those who do evil. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. Again, we talked about it a a few weeks ago, about the judgment of God, but just just to remind you, uh, he says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. 2 Peter 2.9, that there is a judgment that is coming, and God will punish evil. So we began this morning by asking some questions. We are asking, what is the nature of divine punishment? We've started to answer that. We haven't come to a full picture of it, but we've started to answer it, and we said it's covered by all these horrible images. Like, we need to pay attention. It's covered by fire and death and destruction and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're going to have some more to say about the nature of this punishment next week. We're going to continue to look at what is the final state of those who reject God as we just flesh this out some more. But it was important for us to look at hell today. 
We're going to continue to ask the question, what are the, um, which of those three views best represents the teaching of Scripture? And, and maybe you already kind of know where this, is, where this is going, but it's important that we think deeply about these things. And specifically, we wanted to start with what is hell today? What does the Bible teach about hell? Because that's very common to talk about, and we have to have a framework for it. We have to have an understanding of what it is that the Bible is communicating when it talks about the Gehenna of fire. And so what we've discussed this morning, we're just going to summarize, that Jesus used this familiar language to the Jews of Gehenna and fire to warn people about the coming judgment. So hell needs to be understood as a place of divine punishment. And the imagery of judgment that we see throughout the Bible serves as a severe warning that we should turn from evil. It is not okay to murder your neighbor. And Jesus says it is not okay to hate your brother or sister. It is not okay to call them a fool. That there is a righteousness of God that goes beyond what we could imagine as righteousness. And there are ways that we harm other people that God will not allow evildoers to get away with. But it's important that we remember everything that we've discussed so far in these last few weeks, that there, there is a way out for us, that though we're deserving of this punishment, Jesus Christ stood in our place and he paid the penalty. And so we need to heed his warning to turn from evil, and we need to accept the pardon that God offers us and the forgiveness that we have in Him, that we might enter in light, into life, that we might enter into the kingdom of God rather than reject Him and go away into punishment under the righteous wrath and justice of God. So I come and I submit this to you, not pridefully, not boastfully. We don't, as Christians, go out to the world and say, hey, you guys are going to hell deal with it. That, that's not our approach at all. This is, we've been rescued from our sin and the destruction that comes along with it. And we're, we're saying God wants to rescue you too. It's God's heart to rescue all people from sin and death and punishment. And so we have this message of hope that we offer to the world because we recognize that there is such thing as justice and that ultimately justice will be done. But we have pardon and freedom in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you just humbly recognizing that we ourselves are sinners and that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and by nature we were objects of wrath. But because of your great love for us, because you were rich in mercy, you made us alive in Jesus and you raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. Lord, as we contemplate the idea of the eternal destiny of those who reject you, God, we ought to be heartbroken. We recognize that we were there. But if we have trusted in you, we now have entered into life. And God, I pray that as we work through the seriousness of it, Lord, that we would take it seriously. They wouldn't treat it as some academic exercise, Lord, but that we would come to you humbly, full of repentance and faith, and join you in the task of reconciling all things to yourself. You desire 
that all people would be saved. And you give us the ministry, your word says, of reconciliation, that we make this appeal urging people be reconciled to God because Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God, we thank you for that gift of righteousness. We pray that you would embolden us for the task of sharing it with those around us, that they might know your kindness and your love. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.